Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 20th, 2012. Time for the next installment of our Survey of Historical Heresies, as taught by Phil Johnson. One that I'm looking forward to, because as you listen to this lecture... If you spent any time in American evangelicalism, you have met this heresy in one form or another. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And it's really sad and tragic when the crazy is being said because it's all needless. We have a Bible, and the job of a pastor is to preach the word, to feed God's sheep, to care for those whom God has entrusted to his care, to his ministry. But that's not what we're getting a lot of today. We're getting a lot of guys out there wandering on their own, and claiming direct visions from God, which somehow exempt them from the job of the, of, you know, that is assigned to them biblically for uh, their pastoral office, and they're off doing other things. Now, talking about heresies, uh, today we're going to be listening to um, Phil Johnson discussing the Pelagian heresy. Pelagian heresy is the heresy that denies the doctrine of original sin, or in the terms of uh, the Calvinist, total depravity. And the idea here is, is that each and every human being, Scripture reveals, is born dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, an object of God's wrath, and is incapable, therefore, of, by his own work or merit um, or decision, making a decision toward God. God has to regenerate that uh, that sinner, and God regenerates sinners through means. And so... What I'm going to do here is I'm going to hand this over to uh, Phil Johnson and let him fill in the historical details. So without any further ado, here's Phil Johnson discussing the Pelagian heresy. Well, this morning we are on the fourth of the five heresies 
five ancient heresies that we are discussing, and this one is Pelagianism. I'll spell that for you because I did not bring the overhead. We uh, had a minor uh, medical emergency at home this morning. I always do my sermon preparation on Saturday because I'm working all week and everything, so I do it on Saturday, and then I generally print out my notes from the computer. Last night, we had to go out with some people, and so I had to come back home and finish that up, and so I thought, I'll get up early this morning, run over to the office, print the notes out, and I'll be ready. And I did that, and I came back home. I got back home, and Darlene is there, and she's crying, and she's got the hairbrush embedded in her scalp. And she was, like, blow-drying her hair and with one of those round hairbrushes, you know? And she got that thing somehow. So it looked like, actually, she'd attached the brush to the, uh, to the egg beater, you know, and then turned that baby on. And, and so this thing is sticking to her, and she can't get it out. And so I thought, well, no problem. I'll just pull that thing out. Uh-uh, it was tight. I mean, it was so tight. And I resisted the temptation to put both feet on her head and, you know. Ended up, I got a pair of needle-nose pliers and extracted all the little hairbrush things, you know, so that all the little, what do you call the things on a hairbrush? Bristles, yeah. Not really bristles, because they're metal. But I pulled every one of those out yanking and every time I did it it would pull some more of her hair out so if she looks half bald on one side of her head she didn't want me to mention that because it's so embarrassing and I said I've never heard of that happening to anybody but she's here and I'm here and barely ready All right, so we're going to talk about the Pelagians we've been studying these ancient heresies and maybe you've noticed that they fall into two categories so far. Gnosticism and Arianism, the last two that we've looked at, are really Christological controversies. That means they're disputes about the nature or in the person of Christ. They deal with Christology. The other heresy that we studied first, the Judaizers, that dealt with soteriology. That's soteriology meaning the doctrine of salvation. And if we could study every major heresy that's ever come against the church, you'd find that the very serious heresies always fit under one or the other or sometimes even both of these two categories, Christological and soteriological. See, error can affect other areas of your theology. You can have errors in your eschatology, you know, your, your doctrine of last things. You can have errors in ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. You can even have errors in pneumatology. The charismatic movement, I think, is based on certain pneumatological errors, meaning this pneumatology is a study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But what you notice as you study doctrinal history is that all the really serious heresies, all the most serious, the ones that lead to cults and serious false religions, always are based on either a faulty Christology or a faulty soteriology, or both. In other words, heresy becomes really serious when it results in a different gospel or a different Christ. That's exactly what Scripture teaches, isn't it? See, I can fellowship with you if you're in error on ecclesiology, if you have a different view of the church than I have, and if that's the only theological differences that we have, there's no problem. We can fellowship with one another. But if you worship a false Christ or if you proclaim a false gospel, then we are forbidden to embrace you as a brother and sister in Christ. The Apostle John wrote this in 2 John 10 and 11. He said, If there come unto you any that bring not the true doctrine of Christ, receive not that person into your house. Don't even give him a greeting. 
For the one that gives him a greeting becomes a partaker of his evil deeds. And Scripture also says in Galatians 1 that those who preach another gospel, Paul says they're anathema, they're cursed. So those two issues, either the wrong Christ or the wrong gospel, are very serious errors. And each of the errors that we're looking at deal with one or the other of those two heresies. Now, the one we're looking at this, this morning is Pelagianism. Did I spell that already? P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-I-S-M. P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-I-S-M. Pelagianism. This is one of the soteriological errors. deals with the doctrine of salvation. It results in a different gospel. Now, I want to start with a little historical background. This Pelagian controversy arose at the beginning of the 5th century. This is right about 100 years after the Arian controversy. Remember that? That arose about the year 311. The Pelagian controversy started in the year 411. Now, much was happening in the world at this very moment. If you read secular history, you'd find that right at the turn of the 5th century was a very telling time in the world. For one thing, the Roman Empire was collapsing. On August 24th, the year 410, a group of barbarians known as the Visigoths sacked the city of Rome, destroyed Rome. First time the city of Rome had been defeated by a foreign enemy in more than 800 years. This was a huge turning point in world history. And within a few decades, the Goths the Huns, you've heard these names, you probably don't know who they are, but they're all barbarians. The Vandals, you've heard, you've heard of all of those. They were barbarian tribes that defeated the Roman Empire, and they overran all of Europe, even, even into Britain. Now, maybe you don't realize that the gospel came to the British Isles very early in the second century. It didn't take long for the gospel to reach all the way to Britain because the Romans had conquered Britain, in the time of Julius Caesar, about 60 years before the birth of Christ, Rome had conquered Britain. And so there were Roman troops stationed on British soil, and these men brought Christianity with them in the second century. If you've visited England today, you'd still see some remnants of the Roman occupation. There are, there are walls in London that you can see that were built by Rome. Uh, the Hadrian's Wall, the famous wall runs across part of England was built by Rome during this occupation. And in fact, uh, an interesting point of fact, if you've ever traveled in England, you know how notoriously winding those roads are. You can't give someone directions like north, south, east, and west because roads in England curve every way. But every now and then you'll see a straight road that just runs straight. Wherever you see a straight road in England, you know that that is one that was built by the Romans. The Romans built straight roads. The Britons just let it sort of follow the terrain. And that's true to this day. There are roads that are straight, and those always date back to the Romans. Anyway, by the year 400, the very beginning of the 5th century, Christianity and the Roman Empire both had a strong foothold in Britain. And when Constantine was converted back at the beginning of the 4th century, and all of Rome began to become Christian, this had an impact on England as well, what is now England. It was Britain in those days. And Britain became overwhelmingly Christian. But at the, so at the start of the 5th century, Christianity was a major force in Britain. Rome was a major force in Britain. But immediately after the 5th century began, around 407, the year 407, 
Rome withdrew her troops from British soil because there were these barbarians uh, threatening to attack the city of Rome. So the Roman Empire brought all their troops back home to defend Rome. It pulled out of Britain, never to return again. And by the year 466, just about 50 years later, Britain had been overrun by pagan invaders, the Anglo-Saxons. That's where the Angles and the Saxons, two different groups, got together, created Anglo-Saxons, and many of us descend from these people. Well, they started out as pagans who overran England. And the effect of this was that as pagans began to infiltrate England, the Christians in England became refugees. A lot of them left, went to mainland Europe, went to Rome, went to what is parts of what are Italy today, and all around the Mediterranean region. One of these British exiles, one of the men who left Britain when it began to be threatened by pagans was a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was a native, one of my sources says he was a native of Wales. What's Wales today? So he was a Welshman. And in fact, my source said his, his real name was Morgan. That's the first I ever heard that. I don't know why they didn't call this Morganism, but Pelagius was the name that stuck with this guy. He migrated first to Rome, and then when Rome began to be attacked by barbarians, he went from there with a lot of other monks and Christians, fled Rome, and went to northern Africa. And ultimately, Pelagius ended up in Palestine, in Bethlehem, and from there on, we don't know what happened to him. Pelagius was at first drawn to Palestine because that's where Jerome was. If you've ever been uh, to Israel and toured Bethlehem and you see the Church of the Nativity, and after you come out of the Church of the Nativity, they take you into these little caves and stuff. And if you're really attentive to the, to the guide, you'll learn a little bit about church history. Those caves are where Jerome was. He camped out in caves there and wrote Bible studies and translated the scriptures, and that was Jerome's headquarters. And because Jerome was there, Pelagius came. The interesting thing is, after all of the controversy and everything, Jerome became one of Pelagius's harshest critics. Pelagius started out as a monk. He was an ascetic. He, his theological system, the whole thing seems to have been motivated by a desire to emphasize human responsibility. He saw people living careless lives, and he thought there was insufficient emphasis among Christians on the issue of human responsibility, wanted to make people feel responsible to obey God. And so he began to stress this issue of human responsibility. And in order to do that, he taught that the will is totally free. See, he felt free will is essential to human responsibility. This is the way a lot of Arminians think, isn't it? This is still, a, still an issue today, but Pelagius thought, well, if we're going to emphasize human responsibility, we also have to emphasize the freedom of the will. And he began to teach this. And in order to emphasize the freedom of the will, he had to teach that human nature is not inherently corrupt. So he denied the corruption of human nature. And what he ended up with, his whole system, is the purest form of work salvation that has ever claimed the name Christian. But it wasn't Christian at all because Pelagius denied some of the most basic and important truths at the very heart of the gospel. And this whole controversy served to bring these issues out, and we'll see this. When we get into our discussion of Pelagianism, you'll see that this debate over Pelagianism involves some of the very same issues that Calvinists and Arminians disagree on.
A lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people think that what we call Calvinism originated with Calvin in the 16th century. The truth is, all of the doctrines that we usually label Calvinism are the very same body of ideas that Pelagius attacked and that those who opposed Pelagius defended. Now, Pelagius' main opponent you've heard of, his name was Augustine. A lot of people say Augustine. I have a tendency to do that. St. Augustine is a city in Florida. St. Augustine was the guy that fought Pelagianism. And when Rome was sacked in the year 410, Augustine was already 56 years old. It may interest you and encourage you to know that the most productive years of Augustine's life came all after this, after he was 56 years old. He wrote most of his important works after this. And in fact, the body of work that was produced by Augustine after the sacking of Rome, after he was 56 years old, this body of work is really the single most important and influential collection of writings by a single individual since the end of the apostolic era. So this was a very important time in the history of the development of Christian thought. When Rome was sacked, Augustine was the bishop of Hippo. I always think that's a funny name, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo. And I thought, where is Hippo? I didn't know where Hippo was. I heard about it a lot. Anybody know where Hippo is? No, it's not Egypt. I thought, well, it must be Egypt. It's North Africa. It's actually modern-day Algeria. Hippo is close to Carthage on the north coast of Africa, right across the ocean from Rome. It was a straight shot across the Mediterranean from Rome to Hippo and Carthage, pretty close to Hippo. And a lot of these refugees who fled Rome when Rome was sacked came there. And Augustine became their pastor. It was in the midst of all of this that Augustine wrote his famous book, The City of God. If you know about that book, The City of God, Augustine portrays two cities. One is the city of man, one is the city of God. The city of man is earthly, temporal. It's made of bricks and mortar. It can be destroyed. The city of God is eternal. It has eternal values. It's, it's, it can't be destroyed by invading armies and so on. Augustine wrote all of this. If you, if you see the historical context, he was responding to the the defeat of the Roman Empire. And he was saying to people who were discouraged and downhearted that barbarians and pagans had overrun Rome, which they thought of as a Christian country by now. And Augustine was saying, the real city of God is not Rome. It's not an earthly city. It's, it's an eternal reality. It's an invisible thing. And that was the basis of that book. And that book, The City of God, really reflects Augustine's pastoral care of these people who had fled Rome. Now, I already mentioned that Pelagius made his way to northern Africa when he fled Rome in 410. That was the very year, 410, that the Pelagian controversy erupted. Pelagius, when he left Rome, went to Carthage. Carthage, as I said, was not far from Hippo. And in Carthage, it would have been impossible for Pelagius to, to miss the influence of Augustine. Augustine's books were bestsellers of the time, and somehow... Pelagius got a hold of Augustine's book, Confessions, his Confessions. You've, you've heard of Augustine's Confessions. In fact, the other day I was in the mall with my kids. We were, gonna, we were waiting in line for a movie, actually. We went to the bookstore because we had some time before the movie started. And, I, and they had this modern copy of Augustine's Confessions in English. And so I bought it for like a dollar. 
and Augustine's Confessions. And I thought, this is the very thing Pelagius was reading when, when all of this got set off. I just want to read you some, some samples of this, because it's fascinating. I was sitting there in the movie theater, waiting for the movie to start, reading Augustine's Confessions, and he starts railing on the theater. He, he was... <laughs> One of the things he was confessing was the sin of his fascination with the theater. But I won't read that part. <laughs> it's too convicting. He says this. He says, Grant me, Lord... This is the very beginning. You, you'll recognize part of this. It's very famous. Grant me, Lord, to know and to understand whether a man is first to pray for you to, for help or first to praise you, whether he must know you before he can call you to his aid. For if he doesn't know you, how can he pray to you? For he may call for some other help mistaking it for yours. But he says, the thought of you stirs me so deeply. I can't be content unless I praise you because you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You've heard that phrase, right? See, Augustine is, is saying here, he's, he's deliberating over the question of how is it that I came to God in the first place? Was it that I chose God or did he choose me? Did I come to God on my own initiative or did God draw me? And that's the basis, that's the very starting point for this whole book, Augustine's Confessions. Listen to this. I'll read a couple of pages over. He says, and this is all in the form of a prayer to God. It's really great stuff. You should get a copy of this and read it. He says, he's writing to God, Why do you mean so much to me? Help me to find words to explain. Why do I mean so much to you that you should command me to love you? And if I fail to love you, you are angry and threaten me with great sorrow as if not to love you were not sorrow enough in itself. Have pity on me and help me, O Lord. Tell me why you mean so much to me. Whisper in my heart, I am here to save you. Speak so that I may hear your words. My heart has ears ready to listen to you, Lord. Open them wide and whisper in my heart, I'm here to save you. He says, my soul is like a house, too small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. This I know and do not hide. But who is to rid it of these things? There is no one but you to whom I can say, If I have sinned, do you absolve me? Keep me ever your own servant far from pride. I trust and am trusting to find words to utter, Lord, you know that this is true. And, and if you listen to the spirit of that, Augustine is he's confessing his sin and he's saying, Lord, I, I admit this sin. I don't try to hide it from you, but I can't clean it up. I can't. This house that, that I am is too small for you to enter, but if it's going to be enlarged, you're going to have to enlarge it. If it's going to be cleaned up, you're going to have to clean it up. And Augustine was recognizing the necessity of the grace of God. You see, he was saying, Lord, I want to be saved but I can't save myself. Only you can save me. And Pelagius got a copy of this book. This probably didn't look like this one, but more like on a scroll. Anyway, he's reading it. And he came across this passage. This is actually only an excerpt from Augustine's Confession. The real book is much thicker than this. It's, it's like 13 or 14 books, actually. I mean, it makes a thick volume, but he broke it down into these books. And in the 10th book of the thing, he wrote this. He says this. This is from Augustine. My whole hope is in thy exceeding great mercy and that alone. In other words, he's saying, my only hope is your grace. That's the only hope I have. Give what you command and command what you will. 
Thou commandest continency from us, and when I knew, as it is said, that no one could be continent unless God gave it to him. Now, notice here what Augustine is saying. This is a recognition of God's sovereignty over the human will. Augustine is praying for self-control over his lusts. He calls it continency, but he's talking about control over his lusts. In essence, he's saying, I know you command us to control our lusts, but we can't control our lusts without your divine enablement. And then he says this, give what you command and command us to do whatever pleases you. Now, Pelagius read that and he said, that's bad. That's wrong. Pelagius claimed that Augustine's perspective denies human responsibility. See, Augustine was saying, I know I'm sinful. I can't do anything about it. Pelagius says, that's simply a denial of human responsibility. Pelagius said, if men are morally unable to obey God, then they can't be held responsible for their sins. Now, let's face this honestly. We've discussed these issues before, and it would be foolish to claim that Pelagius's claim here makes no sense. What Pelagius was saying has a certain appeal to the human mind. How could God hold people responsible for doing what they're unable to do? for not doing what they're unable to do. How can God command us to do what we are unable to do and then hold us responsible when we don't do what we're unable to do? That was Pelagius' argument. Has a certain appeal, doesn't it? That's a hard one to answer. And all of this led to an intense discussion and a debate about free will and the effects of sin and grace on the human will, the role of divine sovereignty, the role of predestination. And that's how in North Africa... In the year 411, this major debate broke out over divine sovereignty and the free will of man. And this controversy caused Augustine to think more deeply than he had ever thought about some of these issues. He wrote all that in, in the Confessions, and it's obvious that he had a great dependence on the grace of God and, and a great uh, reverence for the sovereignty of God. But the Pelagian controversy forced Augustine to go back and rethink and think more deeply and define these ideas about divine grace and hu the human will more carefully than he'd ever defined them. That's why his subsequent writings are the most important body of work that he left us. For the next 20 years, he was consumed with this controversy, and he wrote a number of works that condemned the errors of Pelagianism. In fact, this was, this was what he spent the rest of his life doing. And these, you, these books that he wrote in the last 20 years of his life are some of his finest works. These books actually laid the foundation for the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and they are the first in-depth, systematic study of all the doctrines that you and I would label Calvinism. Now, this morning, I wish we had time to really study this, but we could spend years on it and never really plumb the depths of it. So this morning, having to boil it down into an hour or less... I just want to deal with two, the two main theological issues that arose in this controversy. And those are the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of grace. And what I want to do is try to contrast what Pelagius taught and what the Scriptures teach. Now, first we deal with the issue of sin. Pelagius, uh, just some more historical background here. Pelagius may be the guy that gave his name to this controversy. He, he earned that dubious honor when he started this whole controversy by attacking Augustine, and that set it off. But oddly enough, Pelagius himself quickly became a kind of minor character in this dispute. Within 10 years after the start of this controversy, he just disappears from the scene. What ultimately happened to him 
where he went, when he died, all of those are questions that, are, that history leaves totally unanswered. We don't know what became of the man. But his best-known disciple was a man named Celestius. Celestius was a friend of Pelagius, a personal friend and disciple. And it was Celestius who was the man who really seems to have developed Pelagianism most fully. It was also Celestius who carried on this debate against Augustine. So when we speak of Pelagianism, we're really describing a system that is as much a product of Celestius's thinking as it is of Pelagius. And the most notable aspect of this heresy that Celestius really was the one who defined, full-fledged Pelagianism hinges on this, and it is the denial of original sin. The denial of original sin. That is at the heart of Pelagianism. The Pelagians denied that Adam's sin has, results in any guilt or corruption for Adam's descendants. Think about why this is. Because Pelagius believed this was the natural consequence of his, first, his stress on human responsibility that leads to a denial of the bondage of the will, the whole idea of free will. And in order to support this idea that the human will is free from all fetters, he says, or else people are not responsible, in order to support that idea, he had to deny original sin. Because if you're born a sinner by nature, if sin is something that you inherit, then, according to Pelagianism, it would be unjust for God to hold individual sinners responsible for their sin. How can God hold us responsible? I was born a sinner. I can't help that, right? That's what Pelagianism says. So Pelagianism taught that the human will must be totally free. It's inclined to neither good nor evil, or else our choices cannot be free. And if our choices aren't free, then we can't be held responsible for what we do. There's a germ of truth in this, by the way. I agree that if our choices are not free, we cannot be held responsible for what we do. Where I differ with Pelagianism, and I will get to this, is on the definition of what constitutes freedom. The Pelagians said a free will is a will that is inclined to neither good nor evil. If your will is inclined to evil, then you're not responsible for your choices. Well, I disagree that the inclination of the will to evil constitutes the will from being not free. That doesn't mean our choices aren't free. What makes our choices free is the fact that we choose without any compulsion. Nobody forces us to make the choices we make. We make the choices that freely that, determine, that are determined by who we are, what we are, who we are like. We are guilty. We are sinners, and that's why we choose to sin, but we choose that freely. Pelagius was teaching it isn't really a free choice unless your will is neither inclined one way or the other. Now, this leads to philosophical absurdity, and I wish we could go into the philosophy of it. It's an interesting thing to read. If you really want to read the best treatment of it, Jonathan Edwards' book on the freedom of the will is the best single volume that deals with it. But the idea that the will could be free from any influence is, is absurd. It would mean that we would never choose anything, for one thing. We are, our wills are determined by what we desire. And our desires are determined by who we are, what our nature is. And since our nature is sinful, our desires are sinful. Since our desires are sinful, our choices are sinful. But we make those choices freely. But the Pelagians said that's not free choice. Free choice, free will means your will isn't determined one way or the other. Your will isn't leaning towards sin and it's not leaning towards good. You can just choose one way or the other. Again, I think that's a philosophical absurdity, but that's what they taught. And since the Pelagians began with these presuppositions, 
they concluded that it, it would be unjust of God to punish sin if we had no choice in the matter, that is, if our wills were already inclined by birth to sin, then that would be unjust for God to punish sin. And so they concluded that since they know God isn't unjust, therefore, they said, the will cannot be inclined to evil. And so they denied original sin. They denied that we inherit any corruption from Adam. This was Celestius' attempt to account for the freedom of the will. Adam's offspring doesn't inherit either the guilt or the corruption of his sin. That's what he said. So under this view, everybody who is born into the world enters life as a blank slate morally. Celestius actually taught that we all enter life on the same grounds that Adam entered life, with a totally free will inclined to neither good nor evil. And, and so according to the Pelagians, the only long-term effect of Adam's fall is that it serves as a bad example to the rest of us. That's how they saw Adam. That's how they interpreted all the passages that blame the sinfulness of humanity on Adam. They said, well, yeah, Adam was responsible because he set a bad example. He was the first, and he set a bad example for everybody else. Now, the earliest Pelagians also taught that there are some people, not many, but some, who live without ever sinning all their lives. See, somebody says to Pelagius and Celestius, so if... if the human will is neither inclined to evil or good, then how come, how come we don't see people choosing good? How come there aren't people who live perfect lives? And Celestius said, well, there are. He said, Abel. He said, how about Abraham? I don't know how he got Abraham because it's clear that Abraham sinned. He said people like Daniel, Joseph, no sin recorded on them. And then the big one, Mary. Mary never sinned. And this is where the idea of the sinlessness of Mary begins to come in. This is, by the way, exactly what modern Roman Catholic theology teaches, that Mary was born without original sin. But against, against the Pelagians, Augustine denied that. If you read what Augustine had to say about Mary, he believed that she did have original sin. Now, back to the Pelagian ideas. Since under the Pelagian system we inherit no corruption from Adam it stands to reason that we inherit no guilt either. So under the Pelagian system, all infants are seen as totally innocent. And this is, this is, by the way, just as a side comment, this is how the unfortunate practice of infant baptism became so deeply ingrained in church practice because the Pelagians refused to baptize infants because they said there's no need to wash away their original sin. And overreacting against that, the Augustinians and most of the church saw that as part of the heresy. They refused to baptize infants. We're going to baptize infants. And the baptizing of infants in this age was a statement of their belief that infants are born with original sin. Now, this is where Phil and I are going to diverge. Now, I'm going to point something out here. A couple of things. Number one, um, there were no Calvinists or Lutherans back then. So this is Catholic, small c, doctrine. Okay. Number two, if you read the canons of the Council of Carthage uh, from this era, the, Car uh, the Carthaginian council that put down the Arian heresy long before uh, Augustine ever pulled out his pen or his quill and started writing, uh, one of the things they clearly stated that is, is that infant baptism was you know, one of the reasons why we reject this. 
And I would say historically the case is going to be made, and I you know needs to be made, and it is made that the uh, the can- the can- Council of Carthage didn't come up with infant baptism just as oh well we've got a solution to that we're gonna we're gonna baptize our infants. I don't think that's a correct reading of of that, and you don't. Yeah, people would have seen that as an innovation at that time. So this is where I would disagree with uh, Phil on this. Just had to make that note. We continue. Now, the error of Pelagianism was worse than baptismal regeneration. I deplore baptismal regeneration. I believe this is one of the issues on which Augustine was tragically wrong. But the error of Pelagianism was worse because Pelagius was teaching that we are not sinners by nature, We are sinners only by choice. Now, let me say again that most of us, if we are honest, will admit that there's a certain reasonableness in the Pelagian system on these issues. These ideas appeal to the natural mind. And whenever people abandon the word of God in favor of human wisdom, you will always see Pelagianism flourish. I grew up in a church like this. I grew up in a liberal church that rejected the scriptures, The pastor of the church I attended in high school plainly admitted to me that he did not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And one of the reasons he gave for rejecting the authority of Scripture was this doctrine of original sin. He knew that the Bible teaches that we inherit guilt from Adam. But he didn't think that was fair. And he explained, I remember him trying to talk me out of believing that the Scriptures were the Word of God. He brought me in his office and he explained to me the doctrine of original sin. And he said to me, do you think that a just God would hold you guilty for Adam's sin, which was committed before you were ever born? Now, I'm a high school kid, and I don't have any answer to this, and I wasn't even a Christian at the time. And at the time, I had to admit to him that I didn't think that sounded very fair. So the doctrines of Pelagianism have this appeal to the natural mind. It seems fair. It seems legitimate. But let me be very clear on this. Pelagianism in all its forms is a kind of anti-Christian unbelief. Because if we take the scriptures at face value, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, then we have to acknowledge that Pelagianism is totally unbiblical because scripture does teach the doctrine of original sin. Turn to Romans 5 and I'll show you this. Romans 5 is the classic passage on original sin. Beginning in verse 12, let's just... I'll step you through here real quickly and show you how this passage compares to the Pelagian system. It says in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, let me stop there and just say Pelagius would would have no problem with that phrase. He would say, yes, sin entered the world by Adam, because in the sense that Adam was the first one who sinned. But look at the next phrase. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, that destroys the Pelagian notion that there are some individuals who've managed to live sinless lives. But Celestius, when somebody pointed this verse out to him, responded to this objection by saying that the word all here is not universal. It doesn't include every individual in particular, but it's a general statement speaking of the overwhelming mass of mankind. Now, I'm a Calvinist, and Calvinists understand that argument because that's the same argument we use to explain some of the verses that talk about Christ dying for all men. But in this context, look at it again, the word all must be universal. Here's why. Because Paul is is using the fact that all people die to prove that all have sinned. Look at the next verse, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed 
when there is no law. Now, here's, here's Paul's argument. In fact, Paul is anticipating the very objection of the Pelagians. The Pelagians claim that you're totally free from guilt and the taint of sin until you willfully, personally break a commandment of God. The Pelagians are saying, sin is not imputed, and therefore you have no sin until you break the law. But Paul says here that cannot be because sin existed in the world long before the law was given. Paul is saying, this is a difficult passage to interpret, what does he mean, sin is not imputed when there is no law? He's saying, yes, there is no strict accounting of sin and transgression and all that, except as it violates the law. So if you're saying that willful, intentional violation of a direct commandment of God is necessary before you can be spoiled with the taint of sin, then how do you explain verse 14? Paul says this is the proof that God counts people guilty of sin, the fact that they die. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgression. In other words, you got a whole bunch of people from Adam to Moses who have not violated a direct commandment of God, but Paul says the proof that they are sinners is the fact that they die. They die. The fact that they die proves that they are sinners, proves that God deems them a sinner. In other words, the universality of death is the proof of the universality of sin. Paul is saying that God counted these people guilty, and the proof of that is that they died. Where did their guilt come from? Clearly, what Paul is saying, we'll see this in the context, the original guilt and the corruption that made them sinners was inherited from Adam. That is the point of this passage. Paul says so in several ways. And I'll just run through this, but starting in verse 15, listen to how many times he says here that our original guilt and our original corruption is inherited from Adam because of Adam's sin. Verse 15, through the offense of one, many are dead. Verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Verse 17, by one man's offense, death reigned. Verse 18, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Repeatedly in that passage, Paul is stating that Adam's sin is the reason we are sinners. And notice that Paul clearly says we inherit both the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. Verse 18 says we inherit the guilt. By the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. He's saying we inherit Adam's guilt. Verse 19 says we inherit Adam's corruption. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We were corrupted, turned into sinners. Now someday I'd like to do a message or two on this matter of original sin because it is admittedly difficult to understand. But it's foundational to everything we believe. It's essential to the gospel. And the fact that Pelagius denied it was the thing that led him into such a grave heresy. But for now, I just have to leave it at that and simply state that it is clear from both Scripture and from empirical evidence that all men who have ever been born inherited Adam's sinful nature. You can't deny that by empirical evidence. I challenge you to look around and find someone who's perfect. Don't look this way. And by Scripture we can prove it, because Scripture says, by one man's disobedience, we all were made sinners. And it is clear from Romans 5 that we inherit the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. Now, I'll say this one more thing about original sin. 
far from excusing us for our sinfulness, far from relieving us of the responsibility for sinning, this doctrine of original sin is the very reason we are so guilty. You see, we're more guilty because because of this doctrine than we would be if what Pelagius taught was true. If what Pelagius taught was true, you could do good and do evil by choice, simply one or the other. What the scriptures teach is that we are rotten to the very core of our beings. We are so tainted with sin that to the very depth of our heart, at the very core of who we are, we're sinful. We are an offense to God. That is the reason we're guilty. It's not an excuse from our guilt. Now this doctrine of original sin became the key point in the Pelagian controversy. And the Council of Ephesus in 431 declared Pelagianism, this denial of original sin, declared it heresy. Why is it such serious heresy to deny original sin? Because when you deny the fallenness of humanity, you also deny the need for divine grace. Think about this. In fact, this is the second point, my second point this morning on the doctrine of grace Pelagianism is a denial of the need for the grace of God. Pelagian theology manages to minimize both sin and grace. Contrast this with the Augustinian system, and you'll see why Augustine's theology is so much nobler than Pelagianism. Augustine was profoundly aware of the, his own sinfulness and his inability to obey God's law. That You see that in his confessions, the par, even the portions I read. He saw that to the depth of his, himself, at the very core of his being, he was a sinner. He was a helpless, hopeless sinner. He had a much better understanding of what sin does to humanity than Pelagius did. And Augustine was also, for that very reason, profoundly dependent on the grace of God. And those two things go together inextricably. If you minimize sin, you also minimize the need for grace. You can see this even today. You compare Calvinist theology with Arminian theology. Read the works of Calvinists. Read the words, works of Arminians. And you'll see this dramatic difference. Calvinists uphold the grace of God. They glorify the grace of God. They magnify the, the grace of God. Whereas Arminians minimize that. What they elevate is human responsibility, free will, the human side. And that's why I hate that theology. It's, it's not biblical. So these two things go together, sin and grace. And when you minimize one, you minimize the other. Remember the passage I read to you from Augustine's Confessions? This is what Pelagius originally objected to in Augustine's teaching. Augustine said, Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. He was affirming his utter dependence on the grace of God. Pelagius read that as a denial of human responsibility. Now listen, when we as Christians declare our dependence on the grace of God, we are not denying our responsibility for our failures. What we, are, what we are doing is affirming our inability to be righteous on our own. And this is at the heart of what the gospel teaches. The doctrine of depravity is not a denial of responsibility. It's a recognition of our utter spiritual bankruptcy. That's what total depravity is. It's not an excuse for sin. It doesn't excuse us in any regard. It doesn't minimize our responsibility. 
but it recognizes how spiritually and morally bankrupt we really are. Scripture affirms the utter inability of the sinner to obey God or even love God. Look at Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. I'll read these to you. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, that, that means the unregenerate person cannot love God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. He can't love God. For it is, neither, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That means an unsaved person cannot obey God. It stands to reason, then, if an unsaved person cannot love God and cannot obey God, he cannot please God either. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That teaches the total inability of the sinner to do anything that would earn any merit with God. And what Scripture is saying is that the sinner is in an absolutely hopeless condition. The only hope for fallen humanity is the grace of God. We can't simply turn over a new leaf. That's what Pelagianism taught. Pelagianism suggested that by a sheer act of free will, we can change ourselves from loving sin to loving God. Scripture says that's not the case. We're in bondage to sin. We can't turn from our enmity against God and just by a sheer act of the will decide we're going to love Him. Spiritually, Scripture says we are dead, dead, Again and again, Scripture teaches this. Turn over to Ephesians 2. This is, the classic, this is the classic text on this. And I'll look at this. Well, I am not going to get through my notes this morning. Ephesians 2. I'm just going to start at verse 1. You he hath quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That speaks of a spiritual kind of death, an utter hopelessness. Dead in trespasses and sins. That means that in our state of fallenness, we are completely unable to respond to any stimulus. Just like a corpse. You stick it with a pin, it doesn't respond. And Paul uses this imagery of death just to show and to underscore for us exactly how hopeless and absolutely futile any efforts from us to change ourselves would be. We are utterly hopeless apart from the grace of God. And here's his description, Paul's description of every unconverted sinner. Verse 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now notice what he's saying here. This is a corruption of our very nature. Spiritually, this is tantamount to death. And it means there's nothing whatsoever that the sinner can do to extricate himself from this fallen state. We are by nature. You can't change your nature any more than the leopard can change his spots or the Ethiopian change his skin. I don't know how Michael Jackson did it, but... <laughs> But it's utterly hopeless. You can't change yourself except by the grace of God. Now, Paul is describing here the, the conversion of the Ephesians. And notice that verse 4 was the turning point in their experience. How, with whom does Paul credit their conversion? Who does Paul give credit to for it? What is the difference between an unsaved person and a redeemed person? Is it a decision that the, saved, that the sinner makes? Is it, is it something that is praiseworthy in the sinner? Is it something in the sinner that sets him apart from other sinners that makes him better? What is the turning point? Look at what Paul says, verse 4. But God, 
who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Now notice the heart of what Paul is teaching here. The key phrase is this. Is all, take all the extraneous phrases out. This is the heart of what Paul is saying. But God has quickened us. God has quickened us. It's God who raised us from this state of spiritual death. This is the work of God. That's why he says, by grace are you saved. That's, that's what he means by grace in here. We, we quote this passage a lot, but do we often think about what it's saying? By grace you are saved. He's saying God initiated this. If God had not intervened to raise us from this state of spiritual death, we would still be lost. Verse 6, he's raised us up together, made us to sit together with in Christ, uh, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Now, why? Why does God show us this inexpressible, incomprehensible mercy? Is it because of something salvageable he saw in us? Is it, is it given in response to a free will choice that we make? Not at all. Verse 7 says, it is in order to show the exceeding riches of his grace. In other words, God does this to glorify himself because he glorifies himself by showing us mercy that we have done nothing whatsoever to deserve. That's grace. That is exactly what scripture means when it speaks of grace. God shows us favor that we have done nothing whatsoever to deserve. That's the very definition of grace. Now look at these familiar verses that follow and realize in context what they're saying. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before has ordained that we should walk in them. He's saying that the work of our salvation is wholly God's work. God is who turns us. God is who saves us. Verse 10, God is even the one who creates the good works that we walk in as Christians. He's even foreordained those. Pelagianism, in effect, denies that whole passage of Scripture. Pelagianism denies original sin, and therefore it suggests that people are not really dead in their trespasses and sins. And the effect of that denial is to render the grace of God unnecessary. Pelagianism spoke of grace. If you read the works of Augustine, you'd see he often quotes from Pelagius and talks about Pelagius referring to grace. I wrote down some of these quotes because they're good. Augustine wrote this, whatever it is he means by grace, he says it's something given to Christians according to their merits. That's what Pelagian said grace was, something you earn. It's the opposite of grace. Elsewhere, Augustine wrote that he had read all of Pelagius' works, and he said this, I found him dwelling throughout on scarcely any other topic than the faculty and capacity of human nature, while he makes God's grace consist almost entirely in this. In other words, Pelagius made grace something that is at the sinner's disposal, something that the human controls, the grace of God. Augustine continues, he says, Christ's grace... Indeed, he treats with great brevity, simply mentioning its name so that his only aim seems to be, be to avoid the scandal of avoiding grace altogether. In other words, Augustine says he gives lip service to grace, but the only reason he mentions grace is so that he can't be criticized for leaving out the subject. It's just lip service, though. There was no room for grace in Pelagian theology. Pelagianism simply left 
no room whatsoever for the sovereign work of God. It so elevated the power of the human will that it ended up with nothing but work salvation. If you want to be saved, according to the Pelagians, you, you have it in yourself to choose to do good, and all you have to do is make the right choice. Augustine pointed out that this is the inevitable result of free will doctrine, and he began to deal with this doctrine of free will. I, I can't even go through all the stuff. I mentioned that in 431, the Council of Ephesus finally condemned Pelagianism as utter heresy. But as we've seen with every heresy we've studied so far, have you noticed this? The ruling of a church council is never enough to put an end to the heresy. The false doctrine continues to exert influence even after it's been condemned. And Pelagianizing influences continued for the next hundred years in the church. And this emerged as a, a modified kind of Pelagianism known as semi-Pelagianism. Just a historical footnote, semi-Pelagianism is virtually identical to what we call Arminianism. It's a doctrine that does try to make room for the grace of God, but it sees divine grace as something that, that simply eradicates the effects. It's a universal thing. God just sweepingly gives grace to all men to eradicate the negative effects of original sin, and then from that point on, it, we're right back to Pelagianism. The choice is up to you. You just simply have to choose to do better. And these Pelagianizing influences continued to assault the church. The Council of Orange in 529 declared semi-Pelagianism heresy. Now that was 529, semi-Pelagianism declared heresy. Between 529 and the Protestant Reformation, you have the whole medieval church age. And what went on there in that span of time was a continuous battle with Pelagianizing influences. And if you read the Council of Trent which was the Roman Catholic response to the Reformation. At the end of the 1500s, the Council of Trent pronounces an anathema on anyone who teaches that Adam's sin extinguished the free will of man. That's from the Council of Trent. So the Council of Trent essentially comes full circle and endorses a semi-Pelagian doctrine. That's why I would say Roman Catholicism today is a kind of semi-Pelagianism. And what happened to the Roman Catholic Church was that gradually, because they weren't diligent in fighting against this heresy, gradually the influence of Pelagius corrupted the Roman Catholic Church. And it was up to the Reformation and Calvin and John Knox and the Reformers rediscovered Augustine's writings. And, and that was what set the theological tone for the Reformation. Well, I have a ton more that I can't even go into, and I'm going to just quit and have mercy on you at that point. Let me just say this. Biblical Christianity teaches us to abandon our confidence in human ability and to magnify our dependence on divine grace. The Apostle Paul writes this description of true Christians. He says to the Philippians, We are the true circumcision who worship God, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3. 3. The problem with Pelagianism is that it produces the opposite kind of person. Well, let me close in prayer. Lord, these are difficult truths for our minds to fathom. And I pray that as we study your word, your spirit would impress on our hearts the real importance of divine grace in all its fullness, that we would not look to ourselves and our own abilities in any regard, 
but that we would, like Augustine, say, we're helpless to help ourselves. And it's up to you to enlarge our house and clean it up. And I pray that you would make us people who are utterly dependent on your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.